I'm Heidi Harris. Welcome to the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do this three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can subscribe for free at iTunes. You can also check them out at HeidiHarris.com where I've got them archived. And you can join me weekdays for my live radio show from the Las Vegas Strip on 670 AM KMZQ in Las Vegas, 9 AM to 10 AM. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the homeless situation. Um, I got to tell you, it's getting more and more ridiculous. I can't even drive around town without running into a quote unquote homeless person panhandling on every street corner in town. So I want to talk to somebody who's dealt with this firsthand, and he's got a great book out. It's called Will Work For the Untold Stories of Homelessness. He's also the president and CEO of Bridge Counseling here in Las Vegas. And you know what? He understands that the homeless situation is obviously a multifaceted problem. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation, but a lot of what government is doing is not helping. And what you people are doing when you give them money on the street corner, I guarantee you that's not helping. David Robeck, welcome to the Heidi Harris Show podcast. Well, thank you so much. Great to be here. So talk a little bit about some of the largest misconceptions that people have about homelessness. Because I see people at intersections handing dollars to homeless people, and I think, well, wait a second. Are you really solving a problem? Would you really go to a soup kitchen? Would you really get your hands dirty? Would you really make the actual effort for people? Or you just feel good about yourself because you're handing them a dollar? Well, I think a lot of that is true. I think people are afraid to get their hands dirty. And... uh, the people at the intersections that are taking money often have a place to stay. They often do this as a routine, and many of them actually live in their homes, and they're paying their mortgages with those donations. I've heard of stories of people who walk away from the intersection. You know, They look really bad at the intersection, like they're homeless and whatnot, and they turn they go get into a car. I saw a guy the other day uh, behind McDonald's looking really scruffy with the backpack and looking really filthy, and I watched him whip out like a $600 smartphone. <laughs> Well, there is the, are the $600 smartphones, but there's also the people that have two or three or four Obama phones uh, that they've collected over time. So what do you think government is doing wrong when it comes to homelessness? Because it seems like government is no different than the average person on the street who wants to hand them $5. Government does the same thing when historically in America, we at least wanted to see who actually needed some help. We weren't so quick to just hand them money and kind of, you know, shove them off somewhere. Right. Now, I even remind myself of when I was a little kid, my father pastored a church. If somebody was homeless and they came up and asked for money because we were at church, my father would find out what they could do, and he would have them work before they ever got the the money or the food or both. Um, And so today, I look at what the governments are doing, and there's there's part of uh, an issue is that they want them out of sight um, and away from businesses so that they can get on with, with things. So... Um, they've come up with a strategy of housing first, which I'm not a big proponent of, but that happens to be the national standard of getting people into some kind of a residence, some kind of a quote-unquote permanent residence where um, they are not out on the street. Uh, and that's a fallacy because that is nothing permanent about it, and often the only way to get them to stay in that is to sign them up for Social Security disability. And so that is not a uh, permanent solution to anything. Let's talk about that for a second. I think that's important. We're speaking with David Robeck. His book is Will Work For. It's the untold stories of homelessness. Let's talk about that housing first theory. Now, what exactly does that mean, and why are you not a big fan of that? So housing first is a strategy of identifying homeless and giving them, taking care of their immediate needs initially. But to the government, their immediate needs are 
funding of resources. So it may be signing them up for Medicaid, it may be for food stamps, and maybe even for Social Security. One of the challenges of homeless people often is they've lost ID, and so that is a, a real good supportive uh, element that the government can provide is helping them to get their identification uh, right away. But then they try to get them into a facility to live. And it's not a shelter. It is an apartment usually. Or if there's a family involved, it's, it's a house rental. Um, and that is, you know, it is not a permanent solution if you don't have uh, enough revenue to support it. And if you have a mental health or substance abuse issue that has not been addressed, then you're not going to be successful long term. So what you're saying is that the Housing First initiative is just a matter of getting these people out of the, off the street, out of sight, out of mind, and putting them somewhere that a lot of these government officials know is not going to solve their problem. Well, they hope it's going to solve their problem, and some people do feel better about themselves if they have their own place to live, and that's part of the strategy behind it. Unfortunately, that's not usually the case. People that are homeless, about 70% of them have a mental health issue or a substance abuse issue and many of those are undiagnosed and if they are if you have 70 percent of those people living on the street imagine putting somebody that has an addiction into an apartment what is that going, apartment going to look like how are they going to continue to live successfully if if they're still trying to feed their addiction um, and then they often they have never learned basic skills. Many people, their addictions have started young in life, or if there's a mental health, health issue, uh, they're undiagnosed for years and, and even back into their childhood, and so they have never learned basic skills. People don't know how to grocery shop. They don't know how to cook a meal, so they end up spending the, what nominal money they might get from food stamps at a 7-Eleven, for instance, or most of the fast food restaurants take that money now. And so they're not self-sustaining because that money will be used up by the 10th of the month or the 15th and not go through the entire period. Right. Now, that's an interesting point that you made because you're basically taking people and assuming that if you just give them a house, all their problems will be over. I mean, I see people once in a while walking down the street in the summertime, you know, pushing a child in a shopping cart because they had a kid before they could afford a baby carriage, much less anything else. And I think if I were wealthy, I would love to just give them a car. But giving somebody a car, even if I could do that and wave a magic wand, wouldn't solve why they are where they are, and it wouldn't ultimately make them a wealthier person. Yes, they'd have the car, and maybe that would give them some ability to get to a job, but probably not when you look at all the other decisions around how they got where they are, right? That's correct. One, do they even know how to drive a car? Most mm. people, young people these days, don't even want a driver's license. They don't need a driver's license. So... Would that person be able to operate a car? Would they be insurable? How much would that insurance cost? That's an ongoing debt for that. Um, and like you said, would they be able to get a job with it? Would it just actually give them another opportunity for additional leisure? Um, so buying them a car is not a solution if, unless they're not bought into a solution for their own lives. That's an interesting point, too, and I don't want to gloss over that because when you're, for example, driving down the road and you see some pedestrians, you hear the stories about them walking in front of cars all the time. And I think, you know, statistically after 10 p.m., most of the people who do that are drunk. We know that. But beyond that, I think there are a lot of folks who walk down the street who have never owned a car. They don't understand the physics behind operating a vehicle. That's why they step in front of you. They assume they have the right of way. They don't know that a car will kill them and can't stop that quickly. 
they don't understand the responsibilities of home uh, car ownership. So even if you gave them a car, like you said, you wouldn't solve all their problems. No, you wouldn't. You can't solve their problems by giving them anything, really. You need to be able to come alongside them and help them. And that's a dirty business sometimes. It's dirty and challenging to have to sit with somebody who is under the influence of some kind of substance or if they have a mental health issue and you're not used to those symptoms and you're sitting with them and trying to have a meaningful conversation, you're unlikely to do that, to have the success to do that. And so you really need a professional involved in that, but you need the commitment from the person as well. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about homeless veterans. We hear a lot about that situation. And in your book, We'll Work For, The Untold Stories of Homelessness, you talk about what needs to be done with homeless veterans and a little bit about that problem. Could you elaborate on that? So homeless veterans, you know, I, I look back at the Vietnam War because I'm from that age era. And, and I remember a lot of people coming back from that war and they were unrecognized, in fact, shamed publicly and such. And they had seen things, most of our young people that go to war see things that no person should ever really see. It's wonderful that they are brave enough to do that, and thank God they are. Our country might have been overrun by other sorts uh, at some time, but the reality is they're coming back with a huge baggage of sights and scenes and smells and experiences that they have to deal with, and if they need help to get through some of it. So some of it, the best help are other uh, former soldiers, people that have been in the service. Uh, but others find uh, help through substance use. And so it's a temporary help. It's self-medicating, and that's not a permanent help. But you hear PTSD uh, spoken about a lot, and that really has to do with trauma. So anybody can get PTSD. But in a war zone, you're much more likely to have a trauma experience. So you come back and you need to be able to process that trauma and learn how to deal with that trauma. And if you have already started self-medicating, you're gonna to have to be dealing with both the substance use and probably an addiction by then, and that mental health component of a PTSD. Could be other issues involved in that too. Anxiety and depression, those are just mental health issues. And um, you know, there are people are worried. I was a brave soldier, I've represented our country, and now I am perceived as being weak because I have a mental health issue. No, that's not being weak at all. That's being human. And you experience something that we didn't have to go experience. And now it's our time to help you. Yeah, that's very tough. And that should fall on who? The VA primarily? Well, we know what's happened with the VA. And while they've improved things uh, recently, there are still a number of issues that go with veterans. So some veterans are better at coping with things than others are. Um, we have a couple veterans programs here in Southern Nevada that, that have um, some subtle relationships with the VA. We have a relationship with the VA. We're one of the referral sources for them, the behavioral health agency that I run. Um, and we provide the services that, that, that people will need or that they, they will allow us to give them. Uh, but the VA cannot be the one-stop uh, shop. For, first of all, our VA hospital is out in the middle of the desert. How are they going to get there if yeah. they've got significant issues? <laughs> I know. I've got to pack a lunch from my house to drive out there. <laughs> exactly. And then if they need services elsewhere, you've got your Social Security Department up on the other side of town, and then you've got DMV somewhere else, and there's a variety of places that you have to, come, to go for government services. So no, the VA is not the one-stop 
place for veterans to go. And while they would like to be, I think they're starting to realize they're not, and so they're broadened the availability of services for uh, veterans that are suffering with behavioral health issues. That's really tough. Another category of folks who are often homeless or many times become homeless are ex-cons. You talk about that in your book. Once again, the title of the book is Will Work For, The Untold Stories of Homelessness. You talk about the fact that we don't really do a very good job integrating these people back into society. And I know that's true because a lot of folks want to just throw away the key. Well, it doesn't work that way. Most people who go to prison will get out of prison at some point. And we need to do something to try to help them integrate back into society. Talk Talk about what we can do to try to make things easier so they don't wind up committing more crimes or certainly back out on the streets in any way. So you look at situations like that and you go, okay, I don't want a felon living next door to me. I don't want a felon working for my uh, business. I don't want a felon uh, associating with my children. Well, you've just pretty much taken them out of almost everything. Um, so you've, there's got to be employers, and I know there are some employers that will actually welcome uh, felons or people that have been incarcerated, not even necessarily felons, that they need to have a job. And so they are willing to work the toughest jobs sometimes. Some people are going to go out and commit crime again. We know that. But others that want to reintegrate into the society need a, a helping hand up. They're going to need some help with uh, shelter and probably Medicaid for a while until they can get a real job that helps them uh, get back economically. If they have a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue, and those were the real reasons they got incarcerated in the first place, they, they, were, they had a drug issue and they were out committing crimes, or they had a mental health issue and nobody had helped them uh, really um, figure out life or figure out how to live a life, um, they ended up doing things that were that got them in trouble with the law. So as they come out of jail or out of the penitentiary, uh, they need help um, getting their ID back, getting re-socialized, finding people that will even socialize with them. Remember, these people have been in isolation, socializing only with other cons. And so they need to know what it's like to, to work with people or, or to associate with people at different uh, spots. I'm, I look at churches and I go, it would be great if you would embrace people like that when they come into your church or maybe even do an outreach program to bring them in their, into your church. Right. Um, but even churches, you know, are loath to do that. They, we don't really want those people around our kids. Yeah, and that's, and that's a shame. That's a shame because they're ignoring a huge gap. And, and something that I, I, I know that you get and a lot of people may not think about is that these aren't folks getting out of prison who are going back home to the Waltons. That's not the family they came from in most situations. So it's not as if they have that support system. As you mentioned, they've been hanging around convicts for years. Uh, probably most of their friends are lowlifes. And so it's a whole different change of life if indeed they want to change their lives. And that's a tough situation. Tough, tough transition. That's exactly right. Some of the best things that anybody can do is move out of their neighborhood, move out of their family's home, get away from those family members. It's very hard to basically um, divorce your family, but sometimes it's the best thing you could ever do for yourself. If that is the place where you learned how to do drugs or learned how to commit crimes or came up with an attitude that was really quite antisocial in behavior. What could government do that would be more effective than what they're doing now? So I would start exactly where we are right now, because I don't want to say, let's throw everything out where we have it. We've invested a lot. We've just invested $15 million in a, in a homeless uh, program uh, down near the homeless corridor. So we start there. But we look at things in a different light. We 
first of all, the courts are actually doing a pretty good job. Some of the specialty courts are doing a good job of identifying people and helping them through their addictions and their mental health issues. When you consider that 70% of homelessness uh, has had that affiliation of mental health and substance abuse. So that requirement, finding a way to require them to do it. Now, a court can certainly mandate that it be done, and we deal with those kinds of clients today. Uh, but there's other people that would not require a mandate per se, but they have a mental health issue or a substance use issue. And so we really need to be working on that, providing uh, peers, if you will, or assessments. I would love to have every person that goes into a homeless camp to actually sit down for an, a, a couple hour assessment that identifies everything in their life that they can that they can uh, speak about, and that will probably diagnose a mental health issue or a substance uh, abuse issue right there. Then we can start on, okay, what would be a treatment plan for that? What would be your next steps? Instead, the government doesn't do that piece. They kind of skip over that piece and go, what services can we provide you? How can we get you signed up for uh, government A, B, and C service uh, instead of really helping the patient or helping the person? Well, that's the plan anyway. That's David Robeck, the president and CEO of Bridge Counseling. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Heidi. Good talking with you. You too. Thank you. And you can pick up David's book. The title is Will Work For... The Untold Stories of Homelessness, that it's on Amazon. And I, I suggest you take a look at this because homelessness is not a one-dimensional problem. I realize that gets a big duh. But bottom line, there are people working it who understand this. And unfortunately, a lot of our elected officials don't understand anything other than throwing more money at the problem. So I wanted you to hear from somebody who's in the trenches every single day trying to help the homeless. I'm Heidi Harris. Don't forget that you can tune into my live radio show weekdays. 9 to 10 a.m. on 670 a.m. KMZQ in Las Vegas. And you can also catch these podcasts three times a week. You can subscribe at iTunes or check them out at HeidiHarris.com. That's the way to do it. You can also sign up for my free newsletter at HeidiHarris.com. Until we meet again, remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell. Mm -hmm.